I'm personally very interested in this next presentation. It's been a subject very dear to my heart. Uh, hopefully it will be to yours as well. We're very pleased to have Lieutenant Colonel John Grant, he's a commanding officer of the 9th Regiment, 88th Brigade of the New York National Guard, whose area of operations includes Manhattan and New York City. On the morning of September 11th, 2001, Professor Grant was preparing his teaching position, preparing for his teaching position. Later that morning, we'd find him as Lieutenant Colonel Grant commanding his unit to provide security at the site of the most deadly terrorist attack in American history. He received his Bachelor of Arts from history from Fordham University in New York and his Juris Doctorate from New England School of Law in Boston. He is fluent in five languages. Despite a demanding professional schedule and civic activities, Lieutenant Colonel Grant serves as the Assistant Camp Director for the St. Thomas Aquinas Boys Camp held each year in Cincinnati. Please give a very warm welcome to Lieutenant Grant who will speak to us on the Inquisition Should the Church Apologize. Well, the Inquisition, the word itself connotates many things. It has a meaning, and then it has a meaning that we associate with it, uh, a meaning that has taken on a life of its own. Inquisition comes from the Latin inquisitio, which is an inquiry, an inquest. These are things we have in law right here in this country. We have inquests. Uh, we have inquiries. And basically, what it means is, is to inquire, to learn the truth. And that is all it means. It doesn't mean anything else. Heresy, which we must know what that means, uh, goes hand in hand with inquisition. And that comes from the Latin heresies, which means a sect, a school of belief. And various sects, various schools of belief have developed within the Catholic Church over the past 2,000 years. And the Inquisition was called to deal with them, to see what they meant, what they believed, and whether they were orthodox. But today, inquisition means something very much more than just an inquiry. And it is captured in uh, popular uh, literature, and it's captured in uh, Hollywood. Let me quote. Even while I breathed, there came to my nostrils the breath of vapor of heated iron. A suffocating odor pervaded the prison. A deeper glow settled each moment in the eyes of that glad at my agonies. A richer tint of crimson diffused itself over the pictured horrors of blood. There could be no doubt of the design of my tormentors, almost unrelenting. O oh, most demeanic of men, death, I said, any death but that of the pit. That's taken from The Pit and the Pendulum, written by Edgar Allan Poe. And in this he is describing an inquisition. 
Dostoevsky, pardon my pronunciation, who penned the brothers Karamazov, also outlines the evils of the Inquisition. This is popular literature. Is it true? Are the things the Inquisition are accused of true? Well, we must see how this came about. And to answer that, we have to look at history, of course. The Inquisition is part of history. We need to look at history to see if it is true <clears throat> that the charges given against the Inquisition are true, or if they're not. And if they're not, we have to endeavor to answer why they are not. Well, that brings us to the study of history in general. And the study of history has problems within itself no matter what history you are going to uh, study. And the first problem you're going to have in reading any history is the winner writes the history book. Well, that's going to make it very biased, is it not? I should imagine. We can look to diaries of the time. People write in diaries, tell what's going on during that time. Uh, maybe not so much today. Today we're too busy watching television and radios and other things. We have free time. But in years past, people kept diaries or journals, and they wrote about what was going to be going on, what is going on in their lives. Because the problem with diaries are you always write things to put yourself in your best light. So a diary also can be biased. And also, when we look at history, we have folklore. And folklore is the adding of stories, the embellishment of fact. Uh, George Washington and the cherry tree being one folklore of America. Uh, it probably started out uh, just to show that the man was truthful, I have no doubt. Uh, George Washington had a reputation, an absolute reputation for truthfulness. And perhaps somebody came up with this story of when he was a child, he chopped down this cherry tree, and one questioned by his dad said, I cannot tell a lie, it was I. And that has become more or less truth, an actual fact, something that has happened, and it is only folklore. So a historian has to look at these different things and try to glean the truth from what is in front of them. And one way to do that is the historian must see the facts in the context of the time. What facts are we looking at? What facts are we going to believe? And what was the context of the time? What was happening? What were the major events? What were the people, what were the rulers thinking? What were they trying to accomplish? What were their beliefs? This will all help to determine what the truth is. What they believed, what they thought, what their misconceptions may have been.
where rumor started and became fact, where fact was dropped and rumor was adopted. Martin Luther tells us at the time of his rebellion that the Inquisition was 300 years old. Well, Martin Luther was wrong. I don't know if he was maliciously wrong, if that was his honest belief, or if he was lying, but he was wrong nevertheless. The Inquisition itself actually goes to the beginning of the church. We read St. Ignatius commending the zeal of Corinthians, and they would not allow professors of heresy to pass through their territory. The Code of Justinian contains many decrees by the early Christian emperors in defense of the integrity of the faith. Theodosius banished heretics. St. Augustine speaks of receiving a trans transcript of an inquisition held against a Manichaean, and he, him he himself held an inquisition uh, of, of, of such a person. St. Epiphanius exiled 50 Gnostics. Well, that goes to the early church. That's certainly more than 300 years before Martin Luther's time. And when you think about it, indeed our Lord commanded his followers to go forth and teach all nations what I have taught you. And those that will receive you remain with them. And those who will not leave their cities, and when you leave them, shake the dust of their city from your sandals as a testament. Well, so we could say the Inquisition goes to our Lord's time. All right. What was the Inquisition, and who did it, over whom did it have jurisdiction? that had jurisdiction over Catholics and no one else. St. Thomas Aquinas states about infidels that they are in no ways to be forced to believe, for belief is from the will, and indeed it is. And he further contends that the worship of infidels is to be tolerated as God tolerates certain evils in order that man not lose his liberty. St. Bernard says, men are one to the faith, not by violence, but by persuasion. The obstinate are to be excommunicated, and if necessary, kept in confinement for the safety of others. So here we have jurisdiction, and here we have again the Inquisition long before the time Martin Luther and his 300 years before him. The Council of Trent teaches that the church judges no one who has not entered her fold by baptism. Oh, if you have not been baptized into the Holy Roman Catholic Church, the Inquisition has no jurisdiction over you. How then has this court of inquiry 
become so infamous? Well, we have to look to history again. We see that in Germany, under the Emperor Frederick II, he had taken to in, uh, establishing an inquisition on his own, a secular inquisition. And he was rather brutal in his execution, and indeed he had the mobs of people stirred up to a frenzy. We had mob, mob rule. And if you accused a heretic, if you made it to the court and the mob did not kill you, well, you could face uh, Frederick II. To counter this, the popes reinstituted uh, or formalized the Inquisition. Martin Luther, during his revolt, charges that one of the abuses of the church was the Inquisition. Now the abuse of Frederick II is imputed to the church by that simple statement. And it is a lie or a falsehood stated by him without due regard to the truth or without due diligence to finding out what the truth is. I do not know exactly what was in Martin Luther's mind. Now, the first blow is made against the Inquisition. The lie has begun. What the state has done, and perhaps done wrongly, has now been hurled upon the church. Why was it hurled upon in the church? Well, Martin Luther was in revolt against it. Martin Luther did not want the church to look in good light at all. And when you're on precarious ground, the best way you can get off it is to attack whomever or whatever it is that you're opposing. And that might not be a bad idea if the person or thing you are opposing is worthy of it, but it is nothing more than mudslinging when it is not. And this is what Martin Luther did. And the second blow to the Inquisition, to our concept of it today, to the common concept of it today, comes to us from England. Why is that? Well, we have to go back and think again. How did people think at this time? Time of this Inquisition, the time of uh, the Protestant Reformation, and the time of Tudor England. This was a time of emerging nations. We did not have nations as we saw them today. Kingdoms were just that, they were kingdoms, and they were not necessarily kingdoms of an entire realm. And if you were king, you might not have absolute control over your entire kingdom. You had your marches, your borders with other countries, that you would appoint a general, generally he would become a duke. He pretty much did what he wanted. 
You had barons and earls out in the far reaches of your kingdom, and they weren't necessarily in conformity with everything that you wanted. You also had rival kings. They were not necessarily rival kings of foreign countries, they were rival kings within your own country. You had situations as you had had earlier in England and had at the time in Ireland, you had various kings, sub-kings, under a titular head king. An Audrey, uh, in, in, in Ireland it was called head king. England, they had a, a different word for it. it, escapes me at the moment. But of course, at the time of Henry, you didn't have that. But you also had, just prior to that, the War of the Roses, which was rival families looking for the uh, throne of England. You had the Welch problem in England, and you had the Scots problem in England, many different problems. So we did not have nations as we did then. Let us not forget, Italy was not a nation as we know it today till the late 1800s. Germany was not a nation till 1879, and even then there was a uh, debate, should it be large Germany or small Germany? Would they include in it uh, Catholic Austria in the large Germany or exclude Catholic Austria and have a smaller Germany? In 1879, they answered the question with a smaller Germany. So we didn't have kingdoms like we did. People could not believe that they could get along within their kingdoms with other type of people. With people from foreign lands, with people with different beliefs, people with different values. They believed very much a house divided against itself will not stand. Whether they are right or wrong is not uh, to be answered here. It is a fact. It is an historical fact. This is what people believed. People also believed, and I believe they believed right in this, that faith was a gift from God. And that this gift from God, their faith, was the key to their salvation. And the common man was horrified by the altering of the purity of the faith. They were horrified by it. They didn't have the pluralism that we are so used to today. And in their horror, they looked to their leaders to keep their faith pure. And those leaders were secular and clerical. Thus, we have in many of the emerging states in many of the city-states of Europe at the time, penalties at law. And the penalties at law in the secular arm were much stricter than they were clerically, and indeed they were much stricter than they are today. And separation of church and state was not viewed as we view it today either. The state and religion were one. 
Indeed, today, in Scandinavia, we still see that unity of belief. It is believed if you are not part of the Lutheran religion, you are somehow subversive to the state. England also. If you are not a member of the Church of England, you are somehow not to be fully trusted. And in the laws of England to this very day is an exclusion by act of parliament from any Catholic ever being crowned King of England. Well, now, what was happening at the time that the Inquisition got its black eyes? Well, as we said, Martin Luther was starting his own religion. He had to make the religion, the religion everybody had always belonged to, look bad. And he did it with his 95 theses, most of which were made up, and he did it by attacking the Inquisition. In England, after his theses were posted, King Henry VIII wrote a treatise, on in defense of the seven sacraments. At the time he was very Catholic and at the time uh, for his endeavor he was given the title of defender of the faith by the Pope. Interestingly, when they put the crown on Charlie He's going to claim to be King of England and many other places, and he will also still claim that title. You'll hear him, he'll declare himself Defender of the Faith. But things were not the way Henry wanted him in England. He had a problem. He was married to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of Henry. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, and he did not wish to be married to her any longer. He petitioned Rome, and he petitioned Rome, and he petitioned Rome. He wanted a divorce. He wanted an annulment. Rome would not give it to him. <clears throat> Now, if he was to take matters into his own hands, well, that would be a revolt against the faith, the faith to which his subjects looked at him to defend. This was a problem for him. Additionally, uh, Spain was emerging as a powerful nation under the union of the crown with Isabella and Ferdinand, the end of the Reconquista, he didn't really want to go to war with them. He had a dilemma. He did not want to start a new religion, yet he wanted to do what he wanted to do. And he created a fiction at the time that each bishop in each country was ahead of the religion, the Catholic religion, in that state. So, 
his Archbishop of Canterbury was head of the church in England. He was not subject to the Archbishop of Rome. This did not go over too well with the people. You can fool some of the people some of the time and all that. Did not fool anybody in England. So there was arm twisting and wrangling. There was much threatening going on between the crown and the bishops. And the people lost out. To their disgrace, all but one bishop in England capitulated to the crown and declared the Archbishop of Canterbury the head primate in all England, not subject to the Pope. Well, to further drive the point home that this was against the new state or the established state, to drive the point home that this new religion was not a new religion, but was indeed just a continued old religion, total capitulation was needed. And so Bishop John Fisher lost his life, lost his head, because he would not yield to the usurpation of the church's rights in England. St. Thomas More also lost his life, martyr to the faith, because he would not capitulate to the demands of the crown. Having done that, Henry could look around in England and he could look across the water to Spain. Spain was very prosperous. England was in turmoil. England was not prosperous at the time, was not poor, but was not prosperous. Spain was much more prosperous. It's created a jealousy. They wanted part of this money, which started the rush to the New World. Unfortunately for England, they landed in North America, and there wasn't the streets paved in gold that they were hoping for that the Spanish seemed to have found in South America. Henry turned his eyes on the church. He needed money, he wanted money. And the church had money. The patrimony of the poor, in the monasteries, and in the convents. To demonize the religion, he brought up the Inquisition. To demonize the religion, he brought up the abuses of the popes. And this gave him free reign to plunder many of the churches, many of the monasteries, many of the convents in England. And by plunder, I mean plunder. He stole, his cohorts stole, his barons stole, and human nature being what it is, when you steal, you know you're stealing. You have your conscience. 
So you have to invent a fiction to ease your conscience. You have to invent a fiction to relieve you of guilt in the eyes of other people, and the fiction he used was to demonize the church. His daughter, of course, uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, was definitely cut of the same cloth as he, and she continued the plundering and she continue, continued the demonizing of the church. This is the same Elizabeth who was born Catholic, became Protestant, became Catholic again when her sister Mary took the throne when it was politically correct for her to steal the throne from her sister, she became Protestant again, and she continued her persecution of the church. And we are told in history to call her Good Queen Bess. Good Queen Bess killed many Catholics. And the reason she killed them is because they were obstinate in remaining true to their faith. This was not a new religion. This was not an inquisition to see how you were polluting the established religion. This was an inquisition to see if you still believed in the established religion. But because it was that way, it was okay. And to cast dispersion, to do a sleight of hand, to get the guilt off of her, she threw it on the Catholic Church, and she did that by attacking the Inquisition. She did that by attacking the Pope. She did that by attacking those who remained faithful to the religion. Now, we can't talk about the Inquisition without talking about Spain and the Spanish Inquisition, because that is singled out for special treatment. And so we'll give it special treatment. In Spain, at this very same time, the kingdom, the city-states, had finally unified under one crown. They unified under the one crown by the marriage of Isabella and Ferdinand. And for over 900 years, the inhabitants of Iberia, the Spanish people, fought invaders, invaders to their country. And these invaders came from North Africa and from the Middle East. They were foreigners, and they also happened to have been uh, Mohammedans, believers in Mohammed, practices of the religion of Islam. And after many, after 800 years of fighting, they had finally pushed these people out of their country. They had finally regained their country. They had finally unified under one crown. And they had their state going. Now, with The uh, 
Muslims, there were also Jews from the uh, Middle East. And unlike today, uh, the Jewish people and uh, these uh, uh, Mohammedans uh, from North Africa, they lived hand in hand. They, they did not uh, fight as we see the fighting going on today. And so after the reconquest of Spain, there were left many followers of Islam and many Jewish people. And again, we have the theory that a house divided against itself cannot stand. This was believed also in Spain. And a decree was issued by Isabella and Ferdinand that in order for uh, the followers of Islam to remain, in order for the Jewish people to remain, they would have to convert. They would have to convert to Roman Catholicism, and if they did not convert, they would be expelled from the country. Uh, this might not sound harsh, to be expelled from the country, but we have to keep in mind uh, that the, these people were there for almost 800 years. Well, they certainly had established roots in Spain on the Iberian Peninsula, so it, it, it was a little bit harsh. It was up to you to pack up and leave now and start a life over in North Africa where you may have visited, but you never lived. And to avoid of being expelled, many Jews and many uh, Muslims converted by mouth to Roman Catholicism. These were the conversos, the newly converted, the Muranos, uh, the Jews who recently converted. Well, it might seem to have been at the time to those people an easy choice, an easy thing to do, an easy solution to the problem. However, they were baptized. They became, in effect, Roman Catholics <clears throat> by word of mouth. Maybe they didn't necessarily intend to uh, in their own minds, but they did by word of mouth. That gave jurisdiction of them to the Inquisition. And the purity of the faith was to be upheld. And if you really did not believe in the faith, that would get you in trouble with the Inquisition. <clears throat> no, the Inquisition did not forcibly convert anybody. It was not the intent of the Inquisition. So, that is the time period we have when we have a demonization of the Inquisition. Now, let's go back to England and what is going on 
England is losing wars, and it's losing wars to Spain. England is not getting a foothold in America the way they want it to be. They cannot get into South America, which is where they want to be. Spain, in response to uh, England's pirating of their ships, mounted an invasion. We know that invasion is the Spanish Armada. Again, we have a historical problem. The Spanish Armada, I know I was taught in school, was defeated by England and was defeated by Sir Francis Drake, who was the Queen's Admiral. Sir Francis Drake, ladies and gentlemen, was the Queen's Admiral because he was the most profitable pirate she had on the Seven Seas. He regularly boarded Spanish vessels and stole from them. So we are taught that uh, Sir Francis Drake and the English defeated the Spanish Armada. And that's taught as a fact, but it is not. The fact is, Sir Francis Drake never got into a boat to face the Spanish Armada. The fact is, Elizabeth was packing her bags to move up north to Scotland when the Spanish Armada was launched. The fact is, unfortunately, in the English Channel, a storm came up, and the English Channel being the way it is, it was very hard to navigate, it's very hard to navigate today. In the ships they had at the time, it was impossible to navigate, and the Spanish Armada was sunk, not by the English, but by weather. This gave England the go-ahead. This gave England the gumption to create what is known as the Black Legend, to give legality to their new religion, to give legality to their murder of Catholics, which they did, to give legality to their sacking and looting of churches, convents, and the poor. And it started by uh, an Englishman named Montanus. And he penned a book. And he decried the treatment he received in Spain under the Inquisition from which he escaped. And every lie and every myth he could put in there he did. And it was spread around as propaganda. It was spread around to discredit the church. It was spread around to give England legal status, to give the crown legal status, to bring the English people in line with the new religion. The English people were not overwhelmed, certainly not happy about their new religion. The English people, as far back as Henry's second wife, 
were not thrilled with Henry's second wife. Indeed, on their wedding day, <clears throat> when they went through the town of London to present themselves, the new king, the old king, and his new queen, they were loudly booed, and their procession had to be stopped so that they did not become injured. <laughs> so we have the crown trying to bring England in line, and uh, the English people in line. And they did this with this myth. And they did a very, very good job of it. Especially so far as the Spanish Inquisition goes. This myth lives on till today. You mention Inquisition to any person on the street, and it brings up images of torture, it brings up images of death, it brings up images of what I read to you from Edgar Allan Poe's book which in many schools here in America, pit in the pendulum, is required reading, no less. The lie, the myth, goes even to Hollywood. Goes to movies they're making today, but, well, they go to movies made in the golden days of Hollywood. If you remember back to then, your swashbucklers, if you care to, you can rent one and watch it again, you will see the demonization of the Spanish people. You will see a demonization of the Catholic Church. Our hero will speak English and he will be fair he will probably have blonde hair, he will have blue eyes, he will be very handsome, he will be dashing, and he will be just a swell fellow, an upholder of truth. And as he's sailing along, minding his own business, an evil pirate or an evil Spaniard ship will come on the horizon, and they're the bad guys, and their ships will be black. And when they do battle, and when they cross swords, well, the evil pirate of Spanish descent or the evil Spaniard will have dark hair and he will be swarthy and he will need a shave. His hair will be greasy and his clothes will be tattered and he will sweat as he cheats and tries to fight against, well, our hero who is not sweating and is holding him and probably three other bad guys off with his sword. This is propaganda. We'll hear about this propaganda tomorrow uh, when the colonel speaks to you of the science of psychological warfare. It goes on today. It goes on even today. And so, of course, when you watch these movies, of course these these, these bad guys are capable of doing everything that they are accused of in the Inquisition. Well, look how dirty they are. Look at how mean they fight. They don't fight correctly. They cheat. They don't know how to beat, well, our hero. Our hero sometimes is Sir Francis Drake. 
John Lafitte, the pirate, could have learned from Sir Francis Drake. Trust me on that. So this myth lives today. Let's look into this Inquisition. Let's look at the due process of this Inquisition. Let's look at what everybody is decreeing. What they are charging the church with. This horrible institution. That it is a duty of every Catholic to renounce and apologize for. Two inquisitors would be sent to a town. The inquisition was assigned to the Dominicans and to the Franciscans because of their renown for piety and their renown for being learned men. The inquisitors, upon entering the town, would preach a solemn sermon of faith. To get the ball rolling, they would appoint local clergy and local faithful of good renown to assist them in their inquisition. And then they would sit. And they would wait for somebody, someone to come to them and denounce somebody as a heretic. One denunciation would not be sufficient. There had to be two people to denounce somebody as a heretic. And indeed, the two witnesses must not be involved in any way with the person they are denouncing. The two witnesses should not know each other. We don't want collusion. And if it is found that the people doing the denouncing were lying, severe penalties would be applied to them. After two people would denounce somebody for heresy, the denounced person would be summoned to the tribunal, much the way you are summoned today to court. Maybe not everyone here has ever been summoned to court, or maybe everyone here does not think they've been summoned to court, but if you have gotten a tra uh, traffic ticket a speeding ticket or something, you have been summoned. You have been required to re report to a court. Even if it is only mailing the fine, you have still been summoned. So those denounced would be summoned to the court. After service of the summons, you would have 30 days to report. And in those 30 days, you could either mount your defense or enter a plea uh, that we have today in our American courts, nolo contendere, no contest. In other words, you would go and confess your guilt. And indeed, if you were guilty, you would. 
or should. And if you did that within the 30 days, you would be given a light penance. Unless your guilt, your heresy was notorious, and by that I mean well-known, and if it was notorious, your sentence would be a little bit heavier, but it would have to be public. The wrong committed would have to be seen to be made right. If you did not report within the 30 days and you wanted a trial, you could have a trial. And a jury of sorts, not quite the way we see juries today in the Anglo uh, tradition, but a jury was held and they listened to the proceedings. And this jury was composed of laity and clergy. And th this jury had the ability, unlike juries today have, this jury would have the ability, if they believed you were lying under oath, they could sentence you to prison. A little different from what we know of jury trials, but that is what the Inquisition allowed. After the trial, you would be found guilty or innocent. If you were found guilty, you would be sentenced. Penance would be imposed upon you. And the penances quite often were either a fine, a pilgrimage, or you were required to wear a cross sewn into your clothing. Horrors. If you were found guilty of heresy and you did not recant, if you were steadfast in your heresy, you could be imprisoned. Your property could be confiscated and you could possibly be imprisoned for life. After the pronouncement of penance, you could appeal. You could appeal your penance. You could appeal your conviction. You could appeal it to the head prelate of the country. And if you did not get satisfaction there, you could appeal your conviction to Rome, to the Pope. <coughs> now, if you were found guilty and you did not recant and your heresy was notorious, there was an additional sentence that could be imposed upon you and here's where we get the fuzzy line and here's where we get another black eye to the Inquisition. You could be handed over to the secular arm. You could be handed over to the crown. If you were handed over to the crown, the crown would find whatever the verdict of the Inquisition was to be his verdict, his civil verdict. However, the punishment 
under secular law was much more severe. And this is where you would have beheading or burning of heretics. The church, ladies and gentlemen, did not do that. That was done by a different government. It was done by the secular arm. It was not done by the church at all. Thomas de Torquemada did not go out in the streets of Seville with a torch and chuckle and gleefully light fires under people on stakes and burn them to death. He never did that. However, that is the impression that we get from today's literature. That is the belief of most people in the world today. Indeed, if anything, rather than apologizing for the Inquisition, we should mention to modern man, we owe a debt to the Inquisition. It was the Inquisition that set up a, ju a juridical process. England, we have the Anglo tradition, had also a juridical process. Most of the other emerging states in the world did not. Indeed, England's uh, juridical process at that time, at the time of the Reformation, was very much an inquisition itself. Uh, there are all kinds of legal wrangling done by the Crown of England when the Crown of England was not getting what it wanted from the courts. Hence, you had the establishment of the Star Chamber, the King's Special Court. The Inquisition was established, well, to root out heresy, to keep the faith pure, and was established in a greater detail, a greater emphasis during uh, the Reformation to protect the accused heretic. There was a juridical process which was not being adhered to by the local rulers. There was a juridical process which you were not going to receive from a mob mentality. And there was a lot of mob mentality going on in those days. Again, the people of the time did not want anyone interfering with their faith. This was the key to their salvation. They believed it. And they were right in their belief. There wasn't the pluralism that we have today. Well, God doesn't care what we believe as long as I am a good person. People knew that their faith was their salvation. And they did not look kindly on somebody who interfered with that. They did not look kindly on somebody who was trying to get them to leave, leave the straight and narrow path. How many of you here would look kindly on somebody who took your children to the side and filled their heads up with all sorts of nonsense 
about some false religion. But we wouldn't. Mobs became infuriated and unfortunately took the law into their own hands and didn't have much of a trial and did kill people. The church stepped in and set up a trial. And for this, the church is ridiculed. Now, indeed, we do owe the church a debt. It did substitute court action for mob rule. Now, let's look at today. Let's look at some of the dribble that is being written about the Inquisition. Oh, here's one. Ah, the Story of Religious Controversy, Chapter the 23rd by Joseph McCabe. And the year of this is 1995. It must be said, it must suffice here to say that during the darkest age of Christendom, the 10th century, just states that, he doesn't prove it, there was a brilliant and tolerant Mohammedan civilization in Spain, and that rays of its wonderful culture were passing the Pyrenees to enlighten the barbarians of Europe. The one scholar of the 10th century, Pope Sylvester II, belonged to the south of France and learned his science in Spain, and he lasted four years as Pope and died in order of sulfur. None of this is footnoted. Noted. So we have the Mohammedan civilization far superior to our self-loathing white civilization. Mr. McCabe is a white person. He has gone into the modern day self-loathing of white man and white civilization. We hate ourselves for what we have wrought onto the earth. Somehow we have a guilt for which we can never be forgiven. He writes for us. Then came Innocent III, who had a perfect arsenal of anathemas, and who, when a prince ducked with a grin at the hurled anathema, set armies in motion and drenched the man's kingdom with blood, as Gregory VII had done. Innocent formulated the new principle of persuasion of heretics. There was a papal seat at Vertebo, and the Pope was horrified to learn that not only the councils, magistrates of the town, but the chamberlain, but the chamberlain of his own were Cathari. Cathari were Albigensians, heretics. He soon altered that and laid down this grim principle. Listen very carefully how this clever man plays with words. Indeed, he learns well from history. 
According to civil law, criminals convicted, civil law, criminals convicted of treason are punished with death and their goods are confiscated. Okay. Uh, civil law of which country, he doesn't say. With how much more reason, then, should they who offend Jesus, Son of the Lord God, by deserting their faith, also very carefully, be cut off from the Christian communion and stripped of their goods? Okay, again, according to civil law, criminals convicted of treason, criminals convicted of treason, not talking about heretics, are punished with death. How much more reason then should they who offend Jesus, Son of the Lord God, by deserting their faith, be cut off from the Christian communion and stripped of their goods? He goes on to state, next paragraph, immediately, it is Canon Vacandad who gives us that quotation. A perfectly clear demand that heretics shall be put to death. Am I reading this wrong? Hmm. Interesting. So, we get from that that they be cut off from the Christian community, that the Pope has decreed they be put to death. He continues, there's much drivel in here that I'm not going to go into. Ah. Unfortunately, says Vakandad, in extenuation of these crimes, heresy in the Middle Ages was generally associated with antisocial ideas. Well, yes, it was, as we said. It was a disruption of unity. It was a disruption of your key to salvation. To prove this, he devotes a long chapter of his book to the tenets of those these heretics of southern France. He finds what I have already described, the inner circle, the elect of the Albigensians, who vowed to celibacy and excuse me, voluntary poverty, just as the monks were. He does not make it sufficiently clear that the mass of the Albigensians married and held property like all others, and I may add that they're teaching that they're teaching the right to commit suicide, of which much is made, is now generally recognized. Well, by the broad historical situation, completely discredits the loathsome way of defending the popes by libeling the rebels. Very interesting. Let's read about the Albigensians and what they believed. He says they were like monks. The Albigensians. They called themselves the Cathari, the pure. 
They found marital relations repugnant and rejected marriage as abominable. They profess to be practicing primitive Christianity itself. So they have somehow been endowed by the Creator with knowing exactly how Christianity was practiced at the time of the Apostles and that the Church had it all wrong. They held for a twofold principle of creation, one good, the other evil. Oh, gee, that's not here, is it? Matter was evil and the spirit was good. All existence was in conflict between these two principles. Since all matter was evil, they denied the incarnation that Christ assumed a human body. He forgot that. Regarding Christ as the highest angel, they denied both his humanity and his divinity. Oops. They denied that he could endure injury, thus there was no crucifixion or resurrection. <laughs> My. The entire narration of his passion and death was brushed aside as an illusion. They denied the real present presence in the Eucharist and the sacrifice of the Mass. Just like the monks, I guess. Although sinless, the Virgin Mary had a celestial body like Christ and only appeared to be a woman. They professed hatred and contempt for the church, branding her the scarlet woman of the apocalypse, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of martyrs of Jesus, the Pope was the Antichrist. The sacraments were child, childish impostures and transubstantiation was a mad blasphemy. I'm sure Mr. McCabe is capable of research. He must have just missed these points. <laughs> I don't mean to say he left them out on purpose. Well. They had their own bishops as rulers and their members were divided into the perfected, the consoled, and the believers. Not there again. The believers were obliged to prostrate themselves before the perfected and to venerate them in an obsequious manner. They had one sacrament they made one sacrament out of baptism, confirmation, penance, and the Eucharist, which they called the Consulamentum. Those who died without receiving the Consulamentum would pass either to eternal punishment or into the body of an animal. Oops. I'm sure he just missed that. Since the latter might be a dwelling place of the human soul, 
they refused under all circumstances to take animal life. The putting to death of human beings for any crime whatsoever was considered wrong, therefore the state did not have that right. They also taught that the public prosecution of crime was unjust and no one had the right to administer justice. Interesting. As an attack upon society's most basic component, the family, they contended many things were evil, procreation was condemned as a satanic enterprise, marriage was dismissed as a perpetually sinful state, abortion was reckoned as something to be highly recommended. The last sacrament, or consulumentum, could only be given to those who renounced relations. Critically ill members who were given the consulumentum were then urged to make their salvation certain by the endora. The endure was suicide. Oftentimes, the endure translated into murder. If they agreed, if this newly consulamentumated agreed, they were asked if they were a martyr or a confessor. I don't know about you, this is getting further and further away from the monks. <laughs> Martyrs were suffocated with a pillow. Confessors died of thirst and starvation. The so-called called perfect would often hang around to make sure the person was made to die. It should be mentioned, opportunists sometimes exploited these situations for pro uh, profit. We see that all the time, do we not? Now, three of these tenants, very common today, are they not? They denied the real presence in the Eucharist and the sacrifice of the Mass. They professed to be practicing primitive Christianity that we have today. All from the attack which is believed by many on this horrible institution of the Inquisition. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. An interesting thing, interesting note, made even more so interesting because it was on BBC. Bear with me, I'll get it for you. In 1994, they ran on BBC One, the official 
official state-run uh, television station, the myth of the Spanish Inquisition. It was a 60-minute presentation, and it provided an overview of the Spanish Inquisition. And it stated that the Inquisition in Spain began in 1480 with the historic reunification of Aragon and Castile, Ferdinand and Isabella. And they found that Ferdinand and Isabella began the Inquisition in the hopes of getting religious unity which would foster political unity. And they mention the leaflet, the book penned by Montanus. And it states that this character, Protestant of course, painted the Spaniards as barbarians. And propagandists soon created hooded fiends who tortured their victims in horrible devices, such as the knife-filled Iron Maiden. We've all seen pictures of the Iron Maiden. The Iron Maiden was never used in Spain, by the way. The investigation was rule-based, they found, of the Inquisition. Inquisitors did not have to be clerics, but those inquired did have to have lawyers. The investigation was rule-based and carefully kept in check. And most significantly, historians have declared fraudulent a supposed Inquisition document claiming, claiming the genocide of millions of heretics. What is documented is, this is, uh, documents of the Inquisition, which were kept, there was always a scribe at every Inquisition. And he surfaced and they investigated him. What was document, documented is that 3,000 to 5,000 5, people died during the Inquisition's 350-year history. Also documented are acts of faith public sentencing of heretics in ground, uh, town squares. But the grand myth of thought controlled by sinister fiends has been de debunked by the archival e evidence. The Inquisition itself in Spain was understaffed. In the time period, it was impossible for one or two inquisitors to cover a thousand-mile territory allowed, allotted to each team. In the outlying areas, they never saw an inquisition. The 3,000 to 5,000 documented executions are in comparison to the 150,000 documented witch burnings elsewhere in Europe over the same time. It is historical. They find that it is, this is English television, find that it is a myth. 
nobody has changed the history books. Nobody has changed anybody's mind of John Q. Public outside. Indeed, we find people in the Catholic Church today making apology for the Inquisition. Making apology when no apology need be made. Making apology for things that did not happen. Well, why are they doing that? I cannot myself, nor can you, get into their minds. I cannot say with certainty exactly what it is you are thinking. I can judge you only from your actions. So these apologists of the Inquisition, I must look at their actions. See why they are apologizing to the Inquisition. An article from October 30th, 1999, detailing something that happened here in America. On Sunday, Roman Catholics and Lutherans in Michigan and around the world will celebrate a new agreement that comes close to the ending, close to the ending, of a 500-year-old dispute over salvation. This agreement speaks volumes about the greater unity we're moving toward, said the Reverend John Buddy of Holy Family Catholic Church in Novi, who is helping to coordinate a Catholic Lutheran worship service in Taylor, Michigan, on Sunday to celebrate the agreement. I think this joint declaration is the ecumenical achievement of the century. So Detroit-based Evangelical Lutheran Church and America Bishop Robert Rimbo. The international agreement between the Vatican and dozens of Lutheran denominations will be signed by religious leaders in Augsburg, Augsburg, Germany, on Sunday, and focuses on the doctrine of salvation. The central question is whether God freely gives salvation to humans or whether humans' good works help them to earn it. In early 1500s, Martin Luther was convinced that salvation was strictly a gift from God. The Reformation, which eventually split Protestants away from the Catholic Church, was sparked largely because Luther believed the Catholic Church had strayed from the core doctrine and was offering salvation in exchange for good works. Well, we know that, don't we? On Sunday, uh, these two gentlemen will summarize the new agreement by jointly reading aloud this sentence. Listen carefully. By grace alone, with faith in Christ's saving work, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit, who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us 
to good works. Joint declaration. Neither side is saying they were wrong. I can't read that without saying that the Vatican said they were wrong. A Missouri Synod member, he sums this little agreement up very well, who is a professor of theology at Concordia College in Ann Arbor, said that he believes the Lutheran and Catholic traditions are still widely split on the issue of salvation, not according to that little declaration. He argues, however, that since Catholic leaders are still, still encouraged, he argues that since Catholic leaders still encourage, not teach, encourage, many forms of spiritual good works for their members, they have not fully accepted that salvation is a free gift from God. I've read the document, says he, and I don't see any clarity there. I agree with that 100%. It is inconsistent and confusing. Absolutely. However, it does point to the mindset of those persons who issued it. Those persons who would apologize for the Inquisition. No one will deny that the leaders of the church today are in position of authority. They are absolutely in position of authority. They are absolutely in the position where they could issue apologies. However, by their actions, by their disregard of the truth, their careless disregard of the truth, or their belief of these calumnies, by issuing statements on salvation and good works that they do, I find that their leaders in position of authority of a successor church, not of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And as such, they can issue apologies on behalf of their successor church, not on behalf of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And their apology is no better than the calumnies hurled against the church by Protestants. I don't see a difference. There is no need for the church to apologize. The church did nothing wrong. The church is, once again, as it always is, the victim of calumnies, the victim of hatred, the victim of evil men. It is an eternal struggle, church against Satan. Satan knows well what the mission of the church is the salvation of souls. Satan, through his pride, will deny God souls. Satan, through his pride, will claim God's souls for himself, so he will not allow the church an easy path. And he will rise men up 
to calumnize it. He will rise men up to argue with it. He will rise men up to be as wolves in sheep clothing. We only need make reference to the Alta Vendita, a document seized by the Austrians in the mid-1800s, wherein the Masonic lodges of Italy had laid out their plans for the destruction of the Catholic Church. And in that document, which is published and is available today, although you don't see it, in that document, they stated to face off against the church does not work. We must infiltrate. We must take it over from the inside. We must put good, solid Masonic members into the seminaries. We must have them made priests. And as they age, they will take over the important offices of the church. They will take over the seminaries. They will teach. And they will teach our doctrine, not the doctrine of the church. I do not say with certainty that is what happened today. I do not have the means to study the documents. I do not have the knowledge, personally, that such a thing has happened. But I can judge from what I see. I can judge by the actions of men rather than what they say with their mouth. I would say that these people apologizing for the Inquisition are certainly somewhere in line with the Alta Vendita. They are certainly successors to a new church, not the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Their apologies are null and void on behalf of the Catholic Church. And as I have spoken to you of today, and hope I have proven to you, there is no reason for the church at all to apologize. I thank you very much for your attention and your kind patience. Does anyone have a question that I will endeavor to answer? Yes? Well, you spoke of the demise of the Spanish Paramata. How does uh, Lord Nelson come into play? All right. The question was, I was speaking of the uh, Sp Spanish Armada and its destruction, and the question was, how does Lord Nelson uh, come into play? Uh, Lord Nelson uh, was in the 1800s, I believe. Much different. Yeah, Trafalgar, 1800s. Uh, different, different battle. He, was, he wasn't born yet. So he, he does not come into play. How would you relate the, uh, the trial of St. Joan of Arc to the Inquisition? Was that an Inquisition of sorts? The trial of St. Joan of Arc was, of course, an Inquisition. I didn't go into it because we're going off on a tangent, and I'm trying not to go on to t off onto tangents. 
I think I've already spoken too long, haven't I? I don't know. Anyhow, all right, so the question is, what is it? St. Joan of Arc became a political pundit. She rallied the French royal family to regain their rightful patrimony in France. There was a contention between the King of England and the King of France who did own France. There was a competing claim, especially over Burgundy. She was captured by the English and your greatest the greatest warrior of the other side is just who you would want to capture. And rather than hold her for ransom, rather than kill her, they decided to make it a political play. They accused her of heresy and handed her over to the French to be tried for heresy. And then we get all the nastiness of politics and, well, we got a four-hour lecture going over everything, but that, that's that's how that came up. Uh, I'd be happy to talk to you later about it, but I don't want to. I don't want to talk through dinner. <laughs> Are there any other questions? Anybody else have a question? <clears throat> thank you, John. Oh, thank you.